Good morning, everybody. This is Victoria, your dog guru, and we are discussing a topic I feel like a lot of you must be dealing with on a super regular basis, which is counter surfing. If you aren't familiar with the term counter surfing, basically what it means is the dog is stealing things off the counter. It could be food, it could be objects. You know, lots of dogs do this. So I figured it would be a good topic to chat about today. I've also got one other thing that we're going to talk about, which we'll get into in a little bit. But in the meantime, so some people might think this is a little bit more common with large dogs because they can easily reach up on the counter. But in reality, I've seen Jack Russell's do it. I don't really think it matters the size of the dog. I think it matters how motivated they are to get whatever's on the counter. So there's one easy way to teach a dog to stop going after counters, and that is to not let them have access into the kitchen to begin with, meaning they just know that that's a place they're not allowed to be, and they can lay on the outside of it, they can watch you from, say, the living room watching you cook, but they're not actually allowed into the area. In the very beginning, I think a common mistake is just blocking it off, because basically what it means is they're going to figure out either a way through your little blockade, which is the case a lot of the time, or sometimes they just recognize when the baby gates up versus when it's not, and when it's not is when everything is a free-for-all. When you're training a behavior like this, in the very beginning, a little bit of prevention can help. Because while you're trying to you know, train a different state of behavior and you're wanting them to lose interest essentially in what they keep going after because you have to think about it this way i mean whatever they're getting off of that counter it's a self-rewarding behavior because it's the joy of having it it's the joy of eating it it's the joy of knowing that they got away with it when you at the very first start this process it would be best if you clear off your countertops and make sure there's no food items or anything that could attract them up there to begin with. Now, this isn't something you'll do forever, but it is something you'll do to start breaking the cycle. So there's a few things that really help when you're trying to keep a dog out of a specific area or you're trying to teach them a boundary. And there's actually a twofold process to it. So the first thing I always teach is a really good wait. So I'll ask the dog to wait, hold his position, then I'll say good dog and release. Now, while this might not sound too relevant right now, I'm going to explain why it's useful later. The next thing I like to teach the dog is a solid leave it. And I always use food for this, um, even cheese, because, you know, they're a little bit more motivated for our food than sometimes their own food. If you don't want to use our food, that's fine. But keep in mind, he's already gotten his mouth on it a couple times before. So he knows what you've got versus what he's got is better. <laughs> I actually posted a video of how to teach leave it. There's a lot of different ways to do it. There's a couple keys to the behavior when you're training it for the first time, though. The first thing is, whatever you're telling the dog to leave alone, you make sure that you're presenting right where they can see it, smell it, try and get at it, and you basically just protect it with your hand. You know, if you have a treat, you keep it your hand closed. And then when the dog loses interest and stops pawing at it or licking at it or whatever, then you go, oh, good dog, and you reward with the other hand. In the very beginning, you can't expect them to make the right decision right off. So you have to give them opportunities to kind of go after it. And then when they back off, get the reward for that. 
And that'll stick in their mind. They'll be like, oh, that's what leave it is. It's a really simple thing. All I have to do is when mom is pointing to something or indicating something and I just leave it alone, something good's going to happen. I typically don't recommend that you use leave it when you're going to be giving the dog whatever you're telling them to leave alone. For example, if you're presenting a steak to him, you're obviously not going to hand over the steak to him after you say, leave it. That's still your steak. For me, leave it is one of those behaviors where if you were out on a walk and there was a, you know, carcass on the road and you didn't want them to go over to it, you could say this cue and they would just avoid it. Maybe even make a wide berth away from it. So to me, the most effective leave it is when they know whatever you're telling them to leave alone, they never get. I feel like a leave it where you're like, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, and now you can have it, is sending a little bit of a mixed message to the dog. For me, leave it is exactly what it sounds like. You're leaving it alone. The next piece of the puzzle is actually teaching them backup. Now, this isn't as crucial as the wait and leave it, but it's a useful skill because, you know, if they start inching into your space and heading into the kitchen where they're now not allowed to be, then you can point away from you and say back up. And in the very beginning, when you're teaching this, you kind of have to like walk into their space as you're pointing back, not in a combative way. Like you're not trying to run over them like a freight train. You're just trying to show their body where to go. You know, it's kind of abnormal to see a dog back up unless they're wedged in a space. So you kind of have to create that experience. And when you're first teaching them to back up, you know, pointing straight behind them is the easiest visual marker that they'll have. And I think that's going to be a useful aid. You know, dogs are super visual. They are always watching us. So having a visual marker for a physical behavior where it's not invasive, you know, you're, you're not pushing them back, but you're asking them to go back. And then when they kind of look at you and just shift backwards, maybe even into a sit, I would still reward that because that's a try and you can shape the behavior beyond that into, you know, something that you're actually going to use. A good place to try and practice back up for the first time is in like a hallway is ideal because this way there's not a ton of extra room for them to go right or left. They basically have to go forward or backward and you can make it into a game where you're calling them to you. Good job. And then you point behind and then naturally they're going to start latching on to that hand signal. You know, as soon as you start doing kind of like a, a magnetic pull game where they're coming to you, okay, then you're you're directing them out of your space. That's not rejection. It's just teaching them that when you point over there, just like when you point to you, that's where the dog needs to be. Okay, so now we're going to circle back to the stay exercise. So this is where you need to establish a no movement policy. I mean, general shifting is okay, but bailing is not okay. So if you're starting to teach stay, I recommend that you teach it in multiple positions. So for example, you can do a standing stay, you can do a down stay, you can do a sit stay, and I vary the length of time often so that they can never decide or know in advance how long they're actually going to be there. And why is this important? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. I see dogs break stays a lot because they can anticipate in advance that it's going to be a long time that they're stuck there. If you make the length of time random, they never know if it's going to be a 30 second stay or if it's going to be you're staying here for the duration of a show or longer like dinner. 
So when you're teaching the stay and you feel like you've gotten some traction in that area, then you can actually utilize the stay to put the dog in a position before you enter the kitchen to do whatever it is you're doing. Now, this isn't something that they're going to regulate, meaning if you're not in the kitchen to remind them of the stay, then chances are they're just going to wander in there. So this is one of those behaviors where you need to anticipate what's normal. Um, Some dogs are really crafty and they only go after things when they know the coast is clear. But ideally, if you start practicing, you know, kind of like an invisible line being right outside of your kitchen, that they don't cross, that's going to be the new normal. And that's going to be how you start breaking the habit of them always checking out your countertops. Okay, so now why do we need leave it? So leave it is when they do start approaching. And you kind of have to be using your peripheral vision, if I'm being honest. I mean, you kind of have to just catch them. That doesn't mean you're trying to set them up for failure. But you know, and I know, that sooner or later, they're going to wander in there and they're going to assume you're not watching. And they're going to be sniffing at the countertops and they're going to be trying to what I call shop. And at that point, that's when I would say, leave it. And then I would give them, you know, a lot of praise as soon as they move away from it. Lots of affection. Maybe I would go grab something special for them as a reward. Because that very first time, actually really the first few times that they're doing this in an area where you know they've, quote, offended before, you're starting more of a dialogue where it isn't any longer self-serve countertop, but they do, by listening to you, get a reward. Leave it is one of the strongest cues you can build up in a dog, and it's got a dozen different uses. You can have them, you know, if you, if say they're a barker, if you teach them leave it really well, they can walk by other dogs and ignore them, even if they're not super dog tolerant um, and they're not really social dogs, you can at least stop them engaging in a verbal sparring match with another dog as you're crossing the street or walking by somebody. I had a client whose dog was constantly barking every time they were on a walk. So we focused a lot on getting her, you know, her eyes on us. So we worked on look a lot. Um, And then we used leave it quite a bit as well. So this way, she knew when she heard that word, okay, it's time to leave whatever I've been told alone, which was usually the dog. And then we'd ask her to give us eye contact, and then we'd work on keeping that eye contact with her as we continued moving. And sooner or later, she actually just stopped the behavior altogether. You know, her reaction started getting less and less abrasive, and then they just extinguished altogether. So that's another application for Leave It that you could utilize in maybe your daily life. I had another client whose dog was a counter surfer, and her son came into town to see the new dog and visit for the holidays. Anyway, he didn't know that this dog was a counter surfer. So he went and made himself like a big sandwich with chips and everything. And then he came back and not even the plate was there. I mean, the dog had gotten the plastic plate and brought it over his dog bed and just had a whole picnic. After working together on this, her dog completely stopped that behavior. He wouldn't even approach the kitchen because he knew if he did, he was going to get kicked out. You know, we'd say over there and indicate where the dog could be that was acceptable versus 
just, you don't want to tell a dog just not be here. You need to show them where they should be, where is more acceptable. It could be a dog bed. It could just be an area outside of the kitchen. And then you praise that and you focus there. You know, you want to make sure you're promoting the right response instead of just correcting it. The more you practice leave it, the more value it will have to your dog. If you kind of go by the wayside and start trickling off on the training, they're going to go and scavenge again. Perhaps when you're first adding things back to your countertop, you only put one or two up there so that the the risk reward is a little bit lower for you. But then also it gives you a training opportunity. You can actually address it as it's happening and start tapping into that self-control. Also, when your dog's in a stay, especially when you know that they're super food motivated and they like stealing things off of counters, it wouldn't be the worst idea to give them a special bone or I, my dogs love deer antlers. So that's another one. And they, they last for a really long time. They're great for heavy duty chewers and they come in all different sizes. So I always like the deer antlers as an alternative to other bones that are on the market, things like that. If your dog is peanut butter obsessed or loves cheese whiz or something like that, you can always stuff that into a Kong. There's also puzzle toys available where they can kind of engage with it and then reward themselves by getting a treat out of it. So say it's like a puzzle where they have to move some flaps. Every time they move a flap and they get a treat, you know, there's a reward there. A lot like that same elated feeling they would get from stealing something off a counter. Now they're doing it for themselves constructive way with treats that you've chosen in an area you've chosen and they're getting that same payoff that same emotional currency but they aren't getting your stuff and you're not constantly having to you know be like knock it off you don't want to do any of that there's no reason to be doing all of that (laughs) you can send the message by teaching skills and activating the use of those skills So if you have a counter surfer at home, I recommend trying all of those techniques and building those skills so that maybe you don't have a counter surfer a month from now. And instead, you know, maybe you build it to the point where you could put a roast on that counter and the dog will reject it. And if you think that's completely crazy, I can promise you, I actually had a client that whose dog was notorious for stealing stuff off of counters or off of plates or out of your hand in some cases. And when they really worked the leave it skill, it got to a point where they could, she took a photo of the Thanksgiving turkey, which to me was really brave and put it on the ground and both of her dogs were leaving it alone. So just keep in mind, there's always hope. There's always headway that you can make, but do it in stages so that it's easily digested by the dog and you start getting the results you're really hoping for. Okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about one thing that I feel like isn't always developed enough between owners and their dogs, and that's the relationship. Uh, You've heard me talk a lot about building trust, building consistency, being somewhat predictable where they know what they can expect out of you and they don't have to be afraid of it. But relationship exercises can come in a lot of different forms. It can come through play, it can come through cuddling, it can come through exploring somewhere new together. There's lots of ways that you can really connect with your dog and grow the connection. I think one thing I've seen here more recently, which I have to be honest, I was a little surprised about, is that a lot of people don't really know beyond petting the dog how to connect with the dog. 
So I have some recommendations. If you have a dog that's social or likes to explore, I would take them to a new park. Not every single day, but periodically, something that they can look forward to and enjoy. So, and especially if you like to hike, you know, get your bottles of water and your camel pack ready and take them on an adventure for the day. Okay, so what if you're not a hiker? Then, you know, Lowe's is one of those places where you it's dog friendly. You can take your dog there. And I love that about Lowe's. You know, relationship building can also be training because training is a vital, vital language between you and your dog. It's a constant open dialogue where you give them feedback, they learn, they move forward, they build their confidence up. So, you know, that can be a real bonding experience. I always like to play with toys with dogs. I've come across a handful of dogs that were not really toy motivated, but in general, I think it's great if you're tossing a ball for your dog and they're bringing it back to you because not only is that fun for them and great exercise, but it's also a return. You're teaching the same sort of skill set that you'll use for come when called and you're doing it in a way that's fun for the dog because they get to play, they get to engage. And it's fun. So that's another thing you can try. Uh, There's lots of dog-friendly breweries, restaurants, all sorts of places that are dog-friendly now that you can take your dogs. When you're at home, instead of always having them come on the couch with you, which is fine. If, If you're not having any sort of behavioral issues, it's okay. But, you know, maybe get down on their level. Sit down with them and cuddle with them down on their level. And again, this is if you don't have any behavioral problems, but it's a great bonding experience. It's like it's almost like having like a doggy powwow and sharing in their space with them. For some dogs, they love to be groomed. I have one of those dogs. My other dog couldn't care less if he's ever groomed. I mean, he has to be, but he he doesn't really care so much about it. But grooming can be a really relaxing experience. Just brushing them lightly can be so soothing. And the other thing that I recommend, and I actually used to do this uh, for all my clients, well, all my clients that signed up for it, I, I had dog massage therapy, and I would show them different areas on the dog that were constantly tense and how to loosen them up safely, how to break up some of that lactic acid that, you know, builds up in the muscles when there's tension, just like with us. There's two keys to dog massage. First of all, knowledge. So there are plenty of books out there that talk about safe areas that you can rub and, but the pressure is the other important part. So education, start knowing where you can touch and areas you should avoid. And as far as pressure goes, always light pressure. Always, always light pressure. Because when you're actively massaging them, the more pressure you use, you can actually end up causing damage or more muscle tension or a resistance to wanting to be massaged. So if you don't already, take about five minutes out of your day this afternoon, call your dog over to you, and just give them a really nice head massage. And don't forget the neck because they love neck massages. Um, This can be great for dogs that previously were abused because if you've started building a relationship with them and they learn that you're not going to grab them by the collar to hurt them, then you're establishing a new normal, a new level of trust, perhaps one they've never developed before they ended up in your care. And in regards to dog massage, I think it's really important to take your dog's signals. So if you feel like they're stiffening up or they're giving you the whale eye or they flinch, I don't keep at it. You know, dogs are pretty clear on where they're okay and where they're not okay. So once you've got your general layout of what a dog massage should look like, 
then you can adjust for your dog as an individual, you know, where they hold the most tension. But if your dog gives you a look like do not, don't. Take them at their word. I mean, they can't speak to to you. I mean, some of them will actually yell, but just generally, you have to be aware of your dog. You need to key into how they're behaving. Do they seem happy or comfortable? You know, are they relaxed? Or does it seem like they're super uncomfortable and just waiting till it's over? If that's the case, they might not even like dog massage, but I would always, if I see some indicator, some negative response, then I stop what I'm doing. I stop what I'm doing because I don't need to make a situation worse. And then I try and figure out what it was. Was it the pressure I was using? Was it the area I was addressing? And if you're seeing any issues with your dog's gait, I never recommend doing dog massage, especially until you've actually met with a dog massage therapist who can show you what areas to avoid, what pressures to use, what techniques to use, because they can be a little bit more rhythmic than things you might read of in a book. So if you have a dog that's showing you issues with the gait or soreness somewhere, then key into that, find a professional and let them guide you on what to do with your dog. I hope I gave you some good ideas on how to deal with countersurfing and how to curtail it, change it, and turn it all around. And I hope that perhaps some of my suggestions get applied and you continue forging that bond with your dog in pleasurable ways. If you haven't already, you can email the show at you at gmail.com. You can follow us on Google Plus, dogguru. We have a Facebook page if you'd like to join that. It's facebook.com slash dogguru_podcast, which you can like the page, share it with your friends, get tips and tricks from that. And um, also any new episodes that we air, we always announce it there. If you love our show, then please rate it. You can do so on iTunes. And the higher the rating, the more exposure we get. So thank you in advance. I appreciate everybody listening. And then coming up this weekend, we're actually compiling several owners and we'll be sharing stories about their dogs. So I think that'll be a great segment. I hope everybody enjoys it. And that's in the works this week. So hopefully we are able to get it all edited and put together by this weekend. That's it for me today, everybody. I'm Victoria, your dog guru. Namaste.